My name is Josh Labadee, and you're listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Forge Leadership Network mentors, trains, and connects young conservatives ages 18 to 25, equipping them to lead in politics, culture, and business. For more information or to get involved, visit forgeleadership.org. I'm really excited to introduce you to our speaker, our guest, Hal Heiner. Hal was, was most recently the Secretary of Education and, and Workforce Development for Great Commonwealth of Kentucky. Hal, Hal joked with me the other day, he said, so you want me to share with these students how an engineer <laughs> became a uh, 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 commercial real estate uh, you know." entrepreneur and then became education secretary and, and, and all the ways in between. And the answer is yes. I, I Hal's had a very, um, a, a really, I think, interesting and great journey uh, in public life and in, in just serving his, his community and, and neighbor. And uh, yeah, I think that's the, uh, that's the, that's the thread that ties it all together, I think, is his, his desire to serve his, his city, his community and his state. And uh, so I'm excited. I know I've shared his, a bio with you and, and more of his story, but I'm just going to let him, I'm going to stop talking, let him dive in and, and share with you um, his story and, and, and what he's learned, um, especially in the education uh, world. And then we'll, uh, Jeremiah will help uh, lead us off with a question and answer from there. So Hal, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, Adam, thanks for the introduction. Uh, you know, this world is, you know, from my perspective, is getting increasingly dark and it needs bright lights. It needs people that understand kind of the, have that foundation that they understand why we're here, you know, kind of what's the destiny of man or men and women, but what, what's the destiny of man? Why are we here? And, uh, you know, for a lot of years of my life, I couldn't answer that question. I know the difference kind of on both sides. So our topic tonight is politics and policy of K-12 education. And again, reading your backgrounds, you, I suspect you think that's a, might think that that's a really easy topic because I suspect just about everyone here, K-12 education went pretty well. You know, you probably kind of your life was assisted with education. You probably got some family encouragement, some family help with education, maybe homeschool, whatever. We homeschooled for about four years here in our family. But the K-12 part, I suspect, went pretty well for, for most of the people in, in your class. And thinking this might be an easy topic. But I'll tell you, it is a really rough topic and a tough topic. And I hope tonight to just share a little bit how this has gripped my heart. And my goal is, is that it grips your heart and you can go work on it. And I can go uh, do, do some other things, but I haven't been able to do that now for at least a, a decade. So the three prime roles of government is kind of I, as I see it, public safety and infrastructure and education. And if you look at Kentucky's budget, I'm going to talk a lot about Kentucky tonight because that's kind of the state I know. And Kentucky's budget, over half of our budget is education. It is the big money. It is $6 billion that goes in to educate some 657,000, I think, this year kids in K-12 public. This is public school education I'm talking about. So it's big money. And really, the, the battles that go on with really spending any money are bare knuckled battles. You know, you wouldn't think K-12, I mean, how hard, you know, reading and arithmetic and, but, but they are tough, tough battles on, on education in Kentucky. So 
I have sort of three core beliefs on, on education. And the first is that I believe every single child is uniquely and wonderfully made. The second is that every child has the ability to, to perform at high academic levels, regardless of their socioeconomic background or their color. And the third is that, and this is maybe the most important thing and the, really the basis for a lot of our discussion tonight. The third is that without serious education reform, this is talking about K-12, the U.S. is doomed to increasingly intense class warfare and ultimately declining productivity and stability. And I'm going to share some numbers with you tonight that when I first came across this, and I'll get into that some, but it just sort of blew me away on what's, what's going on in K-12 education. But let me talk a little bit. Adam and talked about my background just a little bit, but I'll just talk a, a few more minutes. So parents are from New York City, born on the University of Alabama campus, grew up kind of in Cleveland, and a Cleveland Browns fan, my dad was anyway, when I was young, when I started high school, uh, moved to Louisville, Kentucky. He was an engineer, he kind of moved with General Electric down, down here. Went to Purdue for two and a half years, but couldn't really make enough money to, to stay there, so transferred to University of Louisville, where I worked kind of wherever I could get a job, weekends, whenever, to pay for education. Ended up getting a master's there in education. I've been married for uh, 43 years. And just sort of full disclosure, I got married at 19. Anyway, that didn't work out so well. But I've uh, been married to Sheila for 43 years. And uh, we actually dated in high school. And, um, and we have four children. And our fourth child was kind of a late-in-life adoption that kind of flowed sort of naturally out of some ministry that Sheila was involved in. About 12 years into our marriage, Sheila and I were uh, born again, began our personal life with Jesus. And I think if you were talking with Sheila here tonight, uh, we both sort of agree, we're not sure our marriage would have survived, you know, if, if we hadn't met Jesus up close. It was, and, and a lot of it was, was my my difficulties on, I couldn't decide what, what the highest priority was. You know, was it my career? Was it, you know, the things that I accumulated? Was it Sheila? And going kind of round and round, and I'm just thankful to Jesus. He kind of organized my, organized my priorities in life. So, and I'm thankful she, she stayed with me through those years. Today, we enjoy, beyond words, 14 grandchildren, ages 0 to 13. And I'd encourage everybody on this call because I do this with my kids. I'm sort of the unabashed production encourager. You know, I tell them, you know, 100 years ago, every family had 12 kids, right, working on the farm. So, you know, and you don't hear, you know, when you talk to those people that had 12 kids, you know, they don't say, you know, our life would have been a lot happier if we didn't have, you know, Frank and Tommy and Sue, you know, and stop at nine or something. You know, they just never say it. And um, so anyway, so we got full production here and we're trying to get them uh, gradually to move here on the farm. The first, first one with five grandkids just, just moved here and we're delighted um, with that. So got out of engineering school, worked in engineering for 12 years, got my name in the firm and uh, then just decided I really wanted to do got itchy and just wanted to be a real estate developer. So forced my way into a firm, begged, whatever, to, to uh, get in there. They usually hire business majors, but anyway, they let me in. And uh, stayed there for a dozen years as a multi-state firm and ended up running the uh, commercial properties group there after a dozen years. And then a really funny thing that I still can't explain why it happened, 
I came home from church in May of 97, after I'd been there a dozen years, and just felt compelled to write a resignation letter. Now, so I was making multiples of what I ever thought I'd make. So I wrote this resignation letter, and there were a few things I was kind of uncomfortable with. You know, when you kind of move up in an organization, sometimes you see things, you know, may not be illegal, but you just don't feel so good about it. Anyway, that started that sitting down here in this office and writing that resignation letter that started a business 24 years ago that God has blessed. And, and he has shown himself in so many unmistakable ways. You know, I think his MO is if you didn't plan it and it's a one in a thousand coincidence, it's him. You know, I, I'm, I'm looking for an answer room in heaven. I really am. But uh, uh, so many unmistakable things. It's really clear to me that, that it's all his. So I had a deep interest in government. I was just really interested in what was going on in Louisville. I don't know where that came from, but I was just interested in it. And in the year 2000, like three years after this company started, we voted here in Louisville to merge our city and county governments, have a merged government instead of two, that, that maybe we'd do better with one government than two. And we weren't doing so hot with two. So then in 2002 was the election. And in the last month, the sign up to run, I don't know, some, something weird came over me. I just decided I had to run. So I went down there to sign up and found out I was the 12th person to sign up. And I'll tell you, I felt so bad for the people in my council district. There were 26 council seats. We had about 42,000 people here. I felt so bad for them. All these people, a lot of them are going door to door and they, don't, they can't figure out who's who. I mean, it was, I'd go up there and they'd say, uh, well, weren't you just here yesterday? And I kept saying, oh no, that was so-and-so. And then I realized, no, just don't say it anymore. Just like, you know, it's, it's great to see you again, you know, but uh, anyway, somehow that worked out, served two terms for eight years. And then at the end of eight years, you know, you get involved in these things. And I'm sure you all do this too. You get involved in things and you just say, you know, we can do better than this. So our mayor took a job in the uh, President Obama White House. So I was an open seat and I got this wild idea. I'll just, you know, I want to have a bigger impact. I'm just going to run for mayor. So in 2010, I ran for mayor down here. And it was a really close, it was a really close finish. I mean, I could still feel that election night. It did not feel good. But uh, one of the really cool things that came out of that is people kept asking me in this race, well, if you're mayor, what are you going to do about education? So I had a great answer for that. I said, you know what? The mayor's not responsible for education. We have an elected school board. They're responsible. It's not in the city's budget. And that's why we elect them. They do that. And people kept asking the question. So finally, I had to dig into it. So I dug into what's going on in Louisville. And we have an area in Louisville called West Louisville. We're a very segregated city. West Louisville is a very high percentage of uh, people either in poverty or people of color. And um, what's going on in those schools? And I'll tell you what I saw shocked me. We had two-thirds of the state's failing schools. We only have 15% of the population here. But two-thirds of the state's failing schools were here in Louisville, and they were almost all in West Louisville. I'm like, what's, you know, what's the future of this city if, if that continues? We had a 20% dropout rate in the schools, again, all heavily centered in West Louisville, which is also the homicide center of Louisville. And uh, that, that gripped me there in 2010, and for the last 10 years, it just hasn't, hasn't let go. So, you know, this has happened a lot in life, okay? So I mentioned, you know, in 2010, you run for council, and then you run for mayor, and then there's a governor's race here in Louisville, and in Kentucky, 
And I just, you know, I look at the Republican candidate. We only have one. I'm a Republican. We only have one Republican candidate. And this guy, I just don't share values with this guy. We're just different. He's not interested in education and, and some other things. So I kept looking for somebody else to run against him, somebody I could support. There is nobody. So I'm like, well, we'll just run for governor. So bought an RV, wrapped it, put my name on the outside, and started going door to door around the state of Kentucky every day. Get up at 6 o'clock, drive off in the RV. We had a trooper that drove it that we paid. And uh, get in 11 o'clock at night. Sheila went with me a lot of the time. And I'll tell you, it was a rich, rich time. The only bad part was that election night didn't work out so well. But a friend of mine named Matt Bevan ran against Mitch McConnell in the, in the Senate primary in 2014, the, the November 14. He came off that race. McConnell kind of, anyway, it wasn't much of a race. It turned out ultimately. But he decided in January of 15 to get in that primary for May. And, um, and ended up winning. Never could figure out why he got in the race, but he did. And as soon as he won, asked me to be secretary of education, which was awesome because he had to deal with all of the mess and like, like pensions and all of that. And I got to work in the area that I was most interested in. So I started out two and a half years as education secretary here. And then I wanted to get closer to, to where we actually changed policy in the state. And that was the State Board of Education. Our constitution basically says that all of our schools in Kentucky, the state has primary responsibility. So ended up becoming board chair for my last year and a half of Matt Bevin's four years as governor. And we were really moving. We had an educate brought in an education reformer, removed the uh, previous commissioner who said a lot of nice things, but there's no movement, brought in a reformer, Amazing guy, amazing guy. He's now the Dean of Education at Belmont University in Nashville. Uh, we lost him as soon as Matt Bevan lost. The new guy came in and shot him like he shot our whole board. But um, we, the things were really moving. So Matt lost the reelection basically because the teachers union hated him and ran the campaign against him. He lost. And I'll tell you, that's really painful because a lot of the movement we see, especially for kids from low socioeconomic incomes and children of color, are just all being reversed right now. So kind of kind of painful. So anyway, that's, uh, that's background. So that was January of this year, you know, 11 months ago, that uh, we had a new governor in Kentucky. I think he'll be a one single, I think he'll be a single termer, but, you know, we'll just see. It's kind, of, it's kind of interesting in government. It's kind of the ebb and flow. I mean, you try to move the ball and then it kind of moves, excuse me, kind of, sorry about that, it kind of moves back. And then it moves, you know, you move, and you just hope, you know, Ann Northup used to be a congresswoman from Louisville, told me when I was real frustrated on the council when we just weren't getting things done fast enough or didn't, didn't win the battle. And uh, she said, you know, if you can move the ball 10% a year, you just count that as a win. And then you come back next year and try to move the ball another 10% you know, the, the next year. Otherwise, you're just going to sort of burn out and always thought that was really good advice. And we did get some good things done on the council. We had a, uh, adult entertainment was exploding across our whole community and we were able to change the zoning code and put in a lot of restrictions like no alcohol, uh, using a constitutional lawyer who is the best Christian guy. Anyway, we got that passed and that just stopped that, that feverish growth. A lot of good things happened on the, on the council in those years. So worked a little more in education. Our we have, I think, the largest Christian school system in the country, about 3,000 kids. was on their board, chaired their board for a while. was on a board called for Summit Academy for kids with learning differences. I uh, was on Asbury University board for a while. Really good school that takes their spiritual 
vitality really seriously and currently on the Portland Christian School Board that, that wants to grow some while holding on to kind of a warm family atmosphere. So that, that's, kind of, that's kind of my, my background. Moving on to education. So the United States, different than a lot of countries around the world, we don't have nobility, right? Early on, they decided we weren't gonna have a king, we weren't gonna have nobles. Uh, we weren't going to have a caste system, which is so prevalent in so much of the world. Um, and John Adams, who I think was one of the strongest advocates for the Declaration of Independence, about, I guess, 18 months before the signing of the Constitution and 10 years after the Declaration of Independence, wrote these words. If, if, I love this. Um, it has ever been my hobby horse to see rising in America an empire of liberty. And the prospect of two or three hundred millions of free men. Of course, we're about 328 million or something like that now. So he's thinking about us. This is back in 17, what, 86. Without one noble or one king among them, you say it is impossible. If I should agree with you in this, I would still say, let us try the experiment and preserve our equality as long as we can. A better system of education for the common people might preserve them long from such artificial inequalities that's are prejudicial to society. And um, I think it's one of the things that makes our country great, that we decided to take a whole different, whole different approach than most of the countries, I think, on the face of the earth. So this is some 234 years ago. Education was at the center of the thinking of what kind of country, what kind of country we would have. And I think it's also interesting that this guy, there was only like 4 million people in, in the country, you know, when he wrote these words. And he's talking about two or 300 million people. I mean, what we have today, he's thinking about us, talking about the importance of education for us to get from there to here. So tonight, I'm going to use Kentucky education outcomes, because that's what I'm familiar with. Kentucky ranks about 33rd, depending on the, 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 sour, the survey, about 33rd in the country, kind of in the middle in terms of education outcomes in the country. But I'm going to use what happens here. But I think it'll be representative of a lot of the states in the country. Particularly, we're going to talk about Louisville, which is our largest city, a metro area of about 1.2 million. And we're going to talk specifically about that and some of the concerns in the uh, inner city. So we're going to talk about three things. One is, first, we're going to talk about is education outcomes. What are the outcomes of the K-12 system here in Kentucky? And how does that break out by groups, by students on IEPs that have learning differences, students of color? I'm going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk also about how do those incomes relate to those individuals' ability to find work, work that uses their God-given abilities to the, to, the, to the maximum, where they have can be able to support themselves uh, in today's economy. So the second thing we're going to talk about is education reforms that have proven to radically improve those outcomes, especially for groups that are socioeconomically disadvantaged and, and children of color. Um, and what we'll see is that the parent is still the most important determinant of the education outcome for students. It's really parents' responsibility, right? And you'll see parents that education is important to them. And you can have a, you know, a bad teacher in third grade, a teacher that doesn't really care in third grade, but that parent's going to make sure that that student learns and they're prepared for fourth grade. It just happens. You talk to people that have turned around inner city schools and they'll say, you can almost tell socioeconomically, higher end students, they'll come back in, in August 
and they'll either be where they were in June or May or higher. Because you know what? They're going to museums. They're, they're, they're having discussions, family discussions. Kids from, a lot of kids from lower socioeconomic families come back in August and they're back to March where they were in learning. And that's that summer regression, that three month of regression that often isn't addressed by school systems. So it adds up. There's a professor, uh, Duke, she's a professor at uh, University of Michigan that writes extensively about this that will tell you those three months add up. They never, they never get addressed the next year and you end up with a Swiss cheese education that falls apart by the time you get to high school. Okay, so we're gonna talk about education reforms. And then the last thing we're gonna talk about is if these education reforms are proven and they work, what are the impediments to just applying them everywhere across the country and improving the outcomes here in Kentucky and in states all across, all across the country? Three items. Okay, first, what are our outcomes? So, so we sit here 158 years from the Emancipation Proclamation you know, I'm old enough, I can remember when we went to integrated schools here in Louisville, the first year was 1965, some 55 years ago. So we're a half a century from integration, 150, you know, a century and a, and a half from the Civil War. And take a look at this chart. The size of the dot represents the number of students. And this is the percentage that are proficient or better in math, sort of at grade level or better, approximately, for students in Kentucky, for all students in Kentucky. So when we call non-GAAP, these are students that are not on free and reduced lunch. So you'll see one dot that says non-GAAP, where about 70% of the kids are proficient. They're at grade level or above. And if you look down at free and reduced price lunch children, lower socioeconomic level, 38.6% of those children are at grade level or above, which makes you think, you know, if you're poor, there really is, maybe you just can't learn. I mean, if you look at this chart, what's going, and black students, 30% are proficient, Hispanic students, 37, white students, 51%. IEP, that's children with learning differences, 24%. LEP, English language learners, 24%. So what's going, you know, what's going on? What's going on here? That's Kentucky's proficiencies. That has stayed static for about 10 years. We had a big increase. We were like 48th in the country in 1990. They had a big reform in the schools uh, that we jumped up about 10 slots by the end of the 90s. But we've been static at these kind of numbers now for a decade. And it gets, so that's for the state as a whole. If you look at Louisville in particular, it's even a more distressing picture. In third grade, a lot of times third grade is considered a determinant of how a child will do later in life. And I don't know why it works that way, but without specific intervention, that's exactly what happens. So if you look at, at uh, Kentucky overall, of our third graders at the end of third grade, 20% can't read at all. They can't see, so they can't read, see Dick run down the road and understand what that means, 20%. If you look in Louisville, which is, sort of Louisville is like the golden goose for Kentucky, right? This is where the jobs are, the money is. We put about double in education, almost 19,000 per student in education here where the rest of the state is about half that. 
and we have 32 in our public school system of 100,000 kids, 32 of a, out of every 100 elementary students in, in Louisville can't read at all. They might get a sight word or two, but they don't understand the context at all at the end of third grade. Now you're probably saying to yourself, how is that even possible? I've got a niece or nephew or somebody that's you know, in kindergarten and they're reading books already. Well, that's, that's where things are here in Louisville. If you look at, I'll pick one inner city school, you know, it's been a troubled inner city school in particular, of the white students in that school, which are a minority, about 30% can read in third grade at any level. I'm not talking about at grade level. I'm saying read at all, 30%, and only 9% of the African-American students can read at all uh, in that school. So when you see statistics like that, it, it's very, very troubling. But then when you find that there are reforms that will address it and they're not being implemented, that's where it grabs your heart and just it just uh, won't, won't let go. We have an interesting teacher assignment. So we have an interesting teacher assignment program here in Louisville where the teachers get to decide where they want to teach, what school they want to teach in. It's a seniority system. So you might make sixty or seventy thousand dollars, you know, if you're a 15-year teacher and half that or something, half that or a little bit more if you're a new teacher. The new teachers all go to West Louisville because that's where the openings are. So they might experience a 70% teacher turnover. The school system is only spending half the amount per student roughly in those schools because it's all new teachers compared to the school out here by our farm, which is which is which uh, tends to have all experienced teachers. You know, the inequities are just unbelievable. The seven members of the school board are all beholden to the teachers union. The teachers union will spend three to four hundred thousand more if they have to on each school board race here uh, in order to control the board. The other poor schmuck running against them, you know, gathers his friends together and puts ten thousand dollars together to try to run against somebody that has the teachers out there being paid to hold signs and all of this. So they totally control the board. They control the seniority system. They control the pay. We just had a tax, 11% tax hike here in Louisville because there's no money left to fix roofs. Some problems here. Our, our teachers union in Louisville runs the NEA's uh, program on independent political campaigns. I mean, they're, they're, they're all about, it's a political, you know, it's a $6 million political organization. What's happened in schools here in Louisville, which are not terrible. I mean, they're not terrible. They're terrible if you're poor or children, child of color, but you, know, you can get a decent education if your parents are, are engaged. But 20% of the parents in Louisville have put their kids in private schools. And in the area we live here in Jefferson County, 40, over 40% have them in private schools. So the loudest voices, the people that can get things done in the public school system, have abandoned the public school system or moved into an adjoining county, left people with the, with the uh, quietest voice or the least able to get things changed in the school system. So it's a, it's a difficult, you know, it's really a difficult situation. Let's talk about uh, where jobs are going and why this is especially concerning. So this, this is an interesting slide because we had back in uh, 08, 09, 10, we had a serious recession. It'll be interesting to see what the pandemic does, but a serious recession. And we have three lines on there. One line is a high school diploma or less. That's the bottom line. The middle line is an associate's degree, but less than a bachelor's degree in the top line is a bachelor's degree. And what we see for the nation 
is that 99% of all recovery jobs after the recession went to people with a degree more than high school. What's happening is low skilled jobs are disappearing in droves. If you have a repetitive motion job, I can almost, I can almost guarantee you that in five years, the job will be gone. I mean, even McDonald's, it's touch screens, the cash registers are going away. Anything repetitive is going away. So the importance of education is greater now than at any time in the country's history. This technological revolution, you need more, every student needs college. Now college may mean, you know, you get a, um, a welding certification, but every, every student needs something more than, than just high school. So 99% of the new jobs since 2010 has required some education beyond high school. So when you think back to the students I was telling you about that can't read in third grade, or that only 9% can read in third grade at a particular school, and you see a chart like this, and you try to plot out what does that future life look like uh, for those students? All right, if we go over, so this is, uh, there's a group called TNTP, they're a national consultant on, uh, on schools and what makes a difference for kids. What they showed conclusively is that there is a soft bigotry of low expectations, that the strongest, the two strongest items that a teacher needs to have in the classroom is high expectations for every child and a strong curriculum and stick to it. And what this shows is that for students of color will achieve at the same level as white students if they are giving great appropriate assignments. The bottom two bar graphs are classrooms, and they, they did a national survey, classrooms where the majority of students of color never received a single great assignment was 40% of the classrooms. So if your, your child or future child's teacher is Googling class assignments the day before the class, and uh, there's not a strong curriculum, and it's not great appropriate, and it doesn't have high expectations for your child, all I can tell you is move schools because it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Some of the interviews with the teachers were like, almost like, you know, the poor dears, we didn't want to make them feel bad about themselves. So we just dumbed down the material, which is exactly part of the reason that we're in the shape we're in right now. Okay, so what education reforms can radically improve outcomes for students that today are unprepared for life? Well, there's some really interesting things going on in education, especially in the states that are moving the fastest. And I see, you know, in Indiana, what's happening in the inner city in Indianapolis, and it's just very encouraging. And I see in Nashville, what's happening in the inner city in Nashville with specialization in education. And it's so encouraging for what's happening there. I just wish, I'd, you know, my goal is get it to Kentucky. But what's happening in the best schools is they're redefining equity. You know, there's a couple of ways you can think about equity in education. One is, Equity means every child gets the same. Or I think an improved definition for equity is every child gets what they need. And um, so then that leads into if you have a child that's, you know, from a homeless background or things go all kinds of things going on, it means working on the uh, social, emotional, uh, child doesn't show up for school, somebody goes out and buys. Somebody goes out and finds them. There's catch-up time in class. There's review of things that were missed in, previ in previous years. And what we've seen from some of the best schools is, uh, and I'll tell you one in particular, KIPP Academy runs uh, over 100 uh, charter schools in the country. 
and they just run middle schools. I mean, prime for the most part. And their average student coming into sixth grade is at a third grade level. It's all inner city, is at the third grade learning level. And by eighth grade, they've caught that student up to eighth grade proficiency. And their graduates then from high school go on to mirror the overall population, about 30 some percent go on and receive four-year degrees. These are students that were in a category that maybe 5% would have received bachelor's degrees sometime in their life. But three years of intervention, students can move two years in one year with, with the specialized, exhausting form of education. Part of it might be six weeks of half-day you know, enrichment summer school. Kids can't be what they can't see, kind of context of life uh, exposure. If what you see in your whole life is, you know, three blocks each way from where, where you live. Exhausting work, but redefining equity that every child gets what they need, not every child gets the same. The other item is that monopoly, monopolies are always bad. And in education, I believe they perpetuate soft bigotry. So if you have a produce, if you live in a town that just has one produce market and you want better produce in the town, you're not happy with the produce, what do you do? You encourage somebody else to open a produce market, right? And what happens? The produce in both gets better. And it's exactly the same thing in education. I spoke to a group of veterans one time and afterwards, a retired teacher in Southern Indiana came over where they do have charter schools. And he came over and I thought, because I talked about charter schools, I, I thought he was gonna read me the riot act. And uh, he retired from a traditional public school. And he said, you know, the biggest positive changes in my entire career in teaching in that school was when the charter school opened up down the street. Because guess what? All of a sudden, those parents could choose, charter school or us. All of a sudden, our principal's telling us, you know, you better better connect with families. You ought to see what they need. We need more feedback. We got all new, we got new curriculum for the entire school, but big changes in that, in that school. So monopolies, I believe, are always bad, and that includes in education. Parents need choice. I had a principal of a turnaround school one time in West Louisville. I did an amazing job. He said, you know, they think parents, low-income parents, aren't concerned about their children and their children's education. He said, nothing could be farther from the truth. He said, when I came in here, they were, they were enraged over what was happening at that school. And you start giving parents choice, and they talk among themselves about outcomes at different schools, like we're seeing now in Indianapolis and in Nashville in particular, and New York City and Harlem. And all of a sudden, most of the schools get better. All right, let's go on to, um, we're on now, what education reforms. So in the education reform space, uh, we're seeing, for the, from a parental choice standpoint, we're seeing vouchers. Indiana has almost every one of these, thanks to uh, Governor Mitch Daniels and the group he surrounded himself with. Tuition tax credits, charter schools, intra-district choice where you don't have to go to your city school, you can go to the next city or county school, education savings accounts funded by the state. And they're just exploding around the country. They really are. Not in Kentucky yet, but they're exploding. I was involved in Christian Academy of Louisville. It has a school in Indiana. And you know what? There's 200 students there now in that school that are on vouchers, low-income students that are on vouchers and, and often students of color in Southern Indiana that are at that school now which has improved the diversity in the school. It's made a huge difference in those kids' lives. And um, otherwise, the family couldn't have afforded, even with tuition assistance, that the some tuition assistance that's available to send their kids there. It's been a, it's been a great thing at Christian Academy of Indiana. Florida has a 
$873 million tax scholarship, tax credit scholarship program, where if you contribute money to a scholarship granting organization, you get a tax credit for whatever you contributed. And um, now they've got, you know, over 100,000 kids that are going to, the parents chose school B or C or D or E, uh, and the average award is almost $7,000 a student uh, to go to those schools. Families that didn't have a choice. You know, families that, you know, if you're higher income, you move, right, where the school is. It's a bad school. It's like, who's going here? You know, I'm <laughs> moving over there. If you're lower income, you really don't have that choice. And uh, you're just fighting to, to make the rent payment this month. So that's two vouchers, tuition, uh, vouchers with the state, if you're low income, will just take certain of that money that went to that public school, traditional public school, and send it where the, where the parent chooses to send their child. Tuition tax credits that go through scholarship granting organizations, you give money to them, you get a state tax credit, and they select the individuals that, that get the grants and do the financial part. Charter schools, where now 6% of the students in the nation go to, go to public charter schools. And where ch the word charter comes from is when you apply to be a school, uh, there's a review by an authorization group. Uh, a lot of times it's universities, sometimes it's mayors, usually it's often it's the state. Uh, there's authorization. And you'll get a three or five year charter. And if you don't do what you said you did, which is often meaning that the outcomes will be better than the traditional public school, you, your charter just isn't renewed. You're just out of business. Never happens to traditional public schools, but in charter schools are just knocking it dead. One, I had a niece from Nashville that worked for Success Academy in Harlem. So it's interesting about Success Academy that they are maybe the top school system. They have 47 schools now. They're all charter schools. They got 99% of their kids passing the, the math exams. Uh, their average household income is $49,000 and 94% of their kids are African-American or Latino. If you move down two lines, Scarsdale District, by comparison, you see the scores there, 88% and 85%. And at, at Scarsdale, the average family income, it's a wealthy district, the average family income is $291,000. So if you ever thought, and this is the average for 47, for 47 school system that started in Harlem, for kids on homeless students, they're getting 98% passing the math exam, where the state average or New York City average is 27%. For English language earners, they're at 97%, where again, New York City's average is at 19%. And it goes on and on and on, all the specialized groups. And um, they're knocking the ball out of the park. And they have shattered forever this myth that if you're from a low socioeconomic family, you're a child of color, that you can't achieve at the highest levels. They are at the highest level and knocking the ball out of the park. Unfortunately, Mayor Bloomberg is trying his best to shut them down. And it's fueled by the teachers union, which is one of his prime backers. You know, it's just criminal. Anyway. It can be done, and it's being done all across, the, all across the country. It just needs to expand its efforts from 6% of the students to a, higher, to a higher number. You know, Credo, uh, Stanford, University, uh, Stanford has a Credo Institute. You can look up their reports there, but on charter schools in 2000, 
15, I think it was, 15 or 17, they did a study on urban charters. And they said on average, on average, this is across the country, kids get an extra two months worth of learning in a charter school compared to a traditional public school in the inner city. All right, let's move on to the third and last area, which is, um, so if we have a proven answer, if people have shown they can make a difference, why don't we implement it everywhere? Why don't we implement it in the intense urban areas in every city of the country and, and make them available for every, every child? There's two reasons, three, actually three reasons. One is teachers unions and their um, massive financial support of typically exclusively democratic office holders. You know, in this a uh, couple of years ago here in Louisville, the Republican legislature, state legislature here in Kentucky offered the mayor, said, you know what, Louisville schools really pulling down the whole state. So why don't you, we'll give you a few seats on the, maybe not a majority, but a few seats on the Louisville uh, school board where you can appoint people and use your bully pulpit to bring about some significant change within the school system. He said, uh, no, thank you. It's, yeah, anyway. Hard to, hard to understand. We also have difficulty uh, here in Kentucky with Republicans in rural areas being against choice because the superintendents is the second group of public schools are against choice because it means a budget decline, right? Typically the money they get from the state is on a average daily attendance number. And if their average daily attendance number goes down because it's basically revenue neutral to the state, they'll put the money in the charter school or put it in a public school. If their budget goes down, they just don't know. I mean, I've had a superintendent tell me, so, you know, if we lost 10 kids and we lost $50,000, he said, I don't know how I'd ever handle that. And I'm like, well, what if you had a program that, you know, attracted 10 kids, you know, 10 more than you have to <laughs> Anyway, so even though people are Republicans and are quietly for choice, they're afraid of a strongly financed opponent if they speak out. Uh, had a teachers union here in Louisville tell me when I was in Frankfurt, our capital, tell me that they could be for charter schools as long as the teachers would be members of the union, paid the dues, about $1,000, could be represented by collective bargaining. And which, which just kind of tells me it's really about, it's really about the money. And, um, and the fear that if charter schools, heaven forbid, they got from 6% to 7% that uh, somebody's budget uh, would go down. And the superintendents, they're worried about their financial situation. If they lose some students, that, uh, that'd be a problem. And the third one, which seems like a simple topic, but you see it all the time. It's just complacency. It's just like, this is the way we do school. And you know what? Somebody rattles some cages and says, you know, we've got to improve something here. So they roll out a re an internal reform package that says it'll have a three or five year horizon that produces no results. And at the end of that, they say, well, we've learned some things now and we're going to roll out another three to five year reform package that does almost nothing. Speaking to a former superintendent here in Louisville, she said, why don't you partner? Why don't you bring in KIPP or Success Academy or something? Partner with them. Do some schools together. You know, it could be part of your system. She said, you know, we've got too much pride for that. We just know we can do it ourselves." And, you know, I was thinking to myself, you know, I always thought pride was a sin. You know, in this case, it, it, it hurts kids. So anyway, in conclusion, we've got a, around the country, 
poor children and children of color that are stuck in an underperforming non-choice system. There's a, there's a soft bigotry of low expectations for those kids. There's an antiquated definition of equity that seals the fate for millions of those children, often by third grade. In fact, future prison planning on where to locate new prisons often looks at third grade reading proficiency to try to project inmate capacity in the future. So my hope is that maybe tonight your, your civic uh, leadership passion has been aroused just a little bit. And, and as you move into positions of uh, ability to affect policy and advocate for policy, that advocating for uh, those that have very little voice, I hope that makes your, makes your agenda. I think this is the um, civil rights, the most pressing civil rights issue of our time. I think the reason that a lot of students of color are where they are is a result of you know, segregation. You can go back to, back to slavery, inadequate education for years. And we just expected that if we just provide the same education, even though the family had no history of education success, that if we just provide the same education to everybody, everybody's gonna be, everybody's gonna be successful rather than redefining equity as every student gets what they need. And it's also the fastest way, you know, there's always war, there's the 60s war on poverty and all that. You know, you wanna break the generational, the family generational bondage of poverty. Education's the best answer. That is the best answer. It's not checks, it's not this, it's not that. It's a great education for the kids in that family. That'll break that bondage. And last, you know, if you're interested in a legacy for, for I'll call it your generation. Uh, how about I'll say our generation, makes me feel younger. For our generation, and you know, if you're looking for a legacy of something that, that made a dramatic change in this country that really impacted people in their lives, I can't think of a more important issue than education reform in the K-12 space. It really is, it really is key. And I think John Adams was right when he was concerned about, you know, without a great education system for all, that, that prejudice would prevail. We're certainly seeing that. The education gap is not closing, it's, it's enlarging across the country. So anyway, thanks for the opportunity uh, to be here with you tonight. Thank you for listening to the Forbes Leadership Podcast. If you like the show, please drop a review in your podcast app and be sure to subscribe for all of our latest episodes. You can follow Forge Leadership Network at Forge Leadership on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about Forge programming, please visit forgeleadership.org.